Have you ever felt like Oliver Wilde here? Uh, coming to God and holding up your hands and saying, please, sir, may I have some more? Have you ever wondered? I'm a Christian. I've been baptized. I have the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and so on. So why am I not more joyful? Why don't I have more peace? Why am I not more loving, or why don't I have more love? Have you ever wondered, just have a nagging feeling, is there something more? Is there something that I'm, that I'm missing? You ever read about the Christians in the New Testament and the obstacles that they overcame and the actual physical persecution, imprisonment, and yet they seem to have this spirit of joy that characterized them? You ever thought, do I have that joy? Or maybe read about in, in magazines like Voice of the Martyrs, Modern-day Christians who are going through real struggles. Uh, for instance, one that I just recently read about, Helen Berhane was a singer and worship leader in an outlawed church in Etria. Etria is a country in East Africa. It's very repressive of religion. And because she would not stop singing her worship song, she was put in prison. Uh, and in fact, she got put in this metal storage container for 10 months with a woman who was mentally ill. And uh, Voice of the Martyrs interviewed her and asked her how she survived that. Here's what she said. First, when she tortured me and pulled my hair and many things, I said, God, what can I learn from this? Because you can't ask God, why did you do this to me? He's such a loving God. That's why he died on the cross. So it's very silly to ask that kind of question. I'm saying, what can I learn from this? Abraham traveled to Mount Moriah to sacrifice Isaac. He decided to sacrifice his own son, so why not sacrifice my comfort zone? I decided to stand by faith. It doesn't matter what the cost. Everything has a, a price. When you buy bread, it costs a price. When you buy a car, it costs a price. And when you follow Jesus, there's a price. Everything has a price. But despite her suffering, Helen kept singing songs of praise, even in the shipping container, even when the guards beat her and demanded her silence. How could she keep singing? She says, because it is biblical, like in Acts 16 when Paul and Silas were in prison and they started singing, they're a good model for us and we can learn from them. When I was in prison, worshiping, it just gave me strength. Now, when you hear stories like that or read them, like I just read, you ever wonder, hey, that was me in the shipping container for 10 months with the crazy woman who's pulling my hair, torturing me. Would I have had the same attitude that she had, praising God? What do you want me to learn from this in a joyful spirit? Is there something more that I seem to be missing in my spiritual life? I want to tell you three Elisha stories this morning. Elisha, a prophet, 800 B.C. to the northern kingdom of Israel. And all of these stories come from 2 Kings in the Old Testament. The first story, 2 Kings chapter 4. Elisha had a co-worker, a, a fellow prophet who had died, leaving a widow and two sons. The widow complained to Elisha, said, hey, we've got, we're in debt. My husband's dead. The creditors are harassing me. In fact, they're threatening to take my two sons and put them in slavery as payment for the debt. They did that kind of thing back then. And Elisha said, all right, well, what do you have in your house? She said, nothing. 
well, I've got this flask of oil. He said, all right, I'll tell you what to do. I want you, to, you and your sons, go around to your friends and neighbors and get as many empty pots as you can. You get in your house, shut the door, and follow my instructions. So they did that. They went from house to house. They're gathering up them empty pots. They go into her house, the widow and her two sons. They shut the door. And then Elisha had instructed them to take the olive oil that was in the flask and begin to pour it into these empty pots. So they poured it into the first pot, filled it to the brim, set it aside. She says, hand me another pot. Filled up that pot to the brim, set it aside. Hand me another pot. And so it went. It was a miracle. Like Jesus feeding of the 5,000, God is miraculously regenerating the olive oil. So they fill pot after pot after pot. And finally, the widow says, now hand me another pot. And her son says, there are no more pots. That's the last one. And when he said there are no more pots, the oil stopped flowing. The Bible says the oil stopped flowing. And Elisha said, now you take all of that olive oil, you sell it, pay your debts, you live on what's remaining. So a great story. When I say story, it's in historical accounts. It actually happened. A great story of God's provision, and I'm sure the widow was thankful, and I know the two sons would have been grateful. They don't have to become slaves. But I can't help wonder, and this part is speculation, but I can't help but wonder if when the widow said, hand me another pot, and her son said, that's the last pot, if her thought process was not trapped, we should have got more pots. I should have got, I need more pots. If we'd been a little more persistent, knocked on a few more doors and, and tried a little bit harder, we could have had more than what we have. Are, are we leaving money on the table in the form of, of olive oil? Well, I mean, that's story number one. And I don't know that's speculation, but the second story is not speculation. Second Elisha story, 2 Kings chapter 13. Now, in this account, Elisha is on his deathbed, and the king of Israel, Jehoahaz, comes to visit Elisha as he's dying. And Elisha says to Jehoahaz, get a bow and some arrows, which he did. He said, put your hand on the bow. And Elisha put his hand on the king's hand and blessed him. He said, now open the window that's facing the east and shoot an arrow out the window. So the king shot an arrow out the eastern window. And Elisha said, that is the arrow of God's victory. You are going to have victory over your enemy, Aram. Aram, the Arameans were the arch enemies of Israel at that time, around 800 B.C. And then Elisha said, now take the arrows that remain and strike the ground with them. And so Jehoahaz took those arrows, and he bent down, and he struck the ground once, twice, three times. And then he stood up. And Elisha was angry with Jehoaz. He said, why did you stop at three times? He said, if you had struck the ground five or six times, you would have had total victory over Aram. But as it is, you will be victorious in the next three battles. And that's it. So apparently, if Jehoaz had been a little bit more zealous, enthusiastic, spirited, and struck the ground several more times, he would have experienced a greater blessing. It was available to him, but he did not receive it. I'm asking this question. Is there a greater blessing, spiritual blessing available to us? Is there more oil that we could be receiving? Is there a greater victory that we might could have? Napoleon Hill 
in his book, Think and Grow Rich, tells the story of an uncle of R.U. Darby, R. Period, U. Period, Darby, who got the gold fever. And this is back during the gold rush days. So he went from New England out west to dig for his fortune. He staked a claim, got the pick, got the shovel, got the wheelbarrow, and he started digging. He, dig, he dug and he dug for weeks. Finally, he was rewarded when he saw the vein of gold ore. But it's going to take some big machinery to get it out. So he covers it back up. He retraces his steps. He goes back home to Maryland, tells his family, tells a few neighbors to get some capital together. They got some money together. R.U. Darby went back with his uncle. They purchased some big drilling equipment on credit with a little deposit that they had, and they began to dig. They brought the first cart full of ore out, sent it to the assayer. The assayer sent it back. Sure enough, he said, this is a rich, rich vein of gold. So they know. I mean, their hopes skyrocket as the equipment drills down. If they can get a couple more cars like that, of gold ore, they can pay off their debt, and then the rest is going to be gravy, profit. But the vein of gold ran out. And though they searched, they couldn't find it. Where to pick it up again? And finally, they quit. They gave up. They sold this drilling equipment to a junk dealer for a few hundred dollars, and they went back home. Meanwhile, the junk dealer consulted with an expert. He had a mineralogist come out who surveyed the area and did some calculations. And he said the reason that they failed is they don't understand fault lines. He said this vein of ore should pick up about three feet from where they stopped digging. And sure enough, that's where the vein was. The junk dealer took millions and millions of dollars of gold ore out of what became one of the richest gold mines in Colorado. Think and grow rich. Moral of the story. What's the moral of the story? I'm sure there's more than one, including don't give up. Don't quit too soon. But I want to make a spiritual application this morning. And the spiritual application is this. Is there a motherlode doctrinal vein. When I say doctrine, the word doctrine simply means teaching. A motherlode doctrine or teaching in the Bible that we are missing because we have not fully exploited it or explored it or dug into it or understood it. And that if we did, there would be much greater blessing available to us than we are currently experiencing. I believe that there is. And I know this is a generalization, but in general, I believe that there is. And this doctrine is the doctrine of God's grace. The doctrine of God's grace. I said I was going to tell uh, three Elisha stories. So here's, here's the third one. Uh, this Elisha story is from 2 Kings chapter 6. Now, what was going on? I mentioned that the Arameans were the arch enemies of the Israelites. So the king of Aram is over here, and he's planning his military campaigns against Israel. Every time he makes his plans and sends out his troops to, to attack Israel at a certain point, Elisha, the prophet's over here and knows what Aram is up to because he's a prophet and God's revealing it to him. So he's warning the king of Israel every time. So Israel is ready for Aram wherever they attempt to attack. 
And so the king of Aram gets his commanders together, and he says, all right, where's the leak? One of you guys is leaking. You're undermining. We make these plans, and they seem to know what we're doing. And the commander said, it's not us. They've got the prophet Elisha over there. What you say in your bedroom, he can tell the king. And the king of Aram said, all right, Elisha, where is he? The commander said, he's in the town of Dothan. So the king of Aram sends his army, and they surround the town of Dothan. So early in the morning, Elisha's servant wakes up, and he looks out, and he sings these chariots and horses and soldiers, an entire army surrounding Dothan. They've come for Elisha. And he wakes him up, and he says, my master, what are we going to do? And Elisha said to his servant, don't worry. Greater are the forces that are with us than the forces that are with them. And then Elisha prays a prayer for his servant. He says, dear Lord, open his eyes. And God answered that prayer and opened the eyes of the servant. Now, normally what he saw is just what we see. We see the reality in this dimension that we live in. But there's another dimension, a spiritual dimension, a reality. And God parted that thin veil, and he let the servant see what Elisha saw. And when God opened the servant's eyes, the Bible says that he saw the hills around Dothan were filled with horses and chariots of fire, the armies of the Lord God. When you read in the Old Testament, the Lord of hosts, depending on your Bible translation, that word host means army. This was the army of God. Do you think that that understanding changed the perspective of the servant? Everything's different now. Do you think it would have affected his peace, his contentment, his assurance, his sense of joy, he's not going to die? Changes everything. Wouldn't it be great? Somebody could pray a prayer like that for us. God, open my eyes. Open our eyes to the riches that are available to us. I might know and perceive things that I'm not currently understanding or comprehending. There is such a prayer. The Apostle Paul prayed a prayer just like that for his brothers and sisters in the church at Ephesus. He prayed a prayer for them, and it's for us as well. Let's take a look at it. It starts off in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which God has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. Now, then he goes off on some teaching and he picks this prayer back up in chapter 3, verse 14. I pray that out of God's glorious, unlimited resources, he will empower you with inner strength through his spirit, then Christ will make his home in your hearts as you trust in him, and your roots will grow down into God's love and keep you strong. And here he says, and may you have the power to understand, as all God's people should, how wide, long, high, and deep his love is. May you experience the love of Christ, though it is too great to fully understand. And then, when? Then 
when you have seen and understood and experienced this love, then you will be made complete with all the fullness of life and power that comes from God. He's writing to Christians. These are people who are already saved. They've been baptized. They have the Holy Spirit, fruit of the Spirit. But he says, I want you to experience this in a way you're not currently experiencing it. Now, I know I have identified the doctrine of grace, and this passage speaks about love. So so let's make a distinction here. By the way, one definition of education is the ability to make finer and finer distinctions in whatever area you're talking about. So let's distinguish between love and grace. You have God's love, and God is love. Grace is a part of God's love. What grace is, grace, when God's love meets sin, it is transformed into grace. When God's holiness meets sin, it's transformed into wrath. But when God's love meets grace, it is transformed into sin. Grace is simply an aspect of God's love. Theologian Jack Cottrell writes this, grace is the most extreme expression of God's love when it comes face to face with sin. Grace is God's willingness and desire to forgive and accept the sinner in spite of his sin, to give the sinner the very opposite of what he deserves. Our appreciation, integration, understanding and embrace of grace impacts every aspect of our Christian life. I believe much of the frustration maybe we experience as individual Christians and as a congregation, as a church, might be due to insufficient grace, to shallow grace in our lives. Not that God's grace is shallow, but that our understanding and comprehension of it is. Are we lacking in motivation? That's shallow grace. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15.10, For I have worked harder than the other apostles, yet it was not I but God who was working through me by His grace. Are we not as generous as we would like to be, as we ought to be? That's shallow grace. 2 Corinthians 8, 1. Brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. They're being tested by many troubles. They're very poor, but they're also filled with joy, which has overflowed to rich generosity. What about the assurance of our salvation? If I died today, am I confident that I would be with God in heaven? That's an issue of grace. Romans 3, 24, we're all justified freely by His grace. How about our purity, our holiness, our struggle with sin, our ability to withstand temptation? That's a grace issue. Titus 2, 11, the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. Whether we're talking about our family life, our ability to forgive others, if we're struggling to forgive someone. That is shallow grace in our lives. So theologian Karl Barth was preaching at a small church, and at the conclusion of his message, someone from the, who had been in attendance came up to him and said, thanks for your message. i got to tell you, though, I'm an astronomer. I'm a trained scientist. And as far as I'm concerned, all of religion can be boiled down to one statement, do to others what you would have them do to you. And Karl Barth replied, well, you know, I'm just a humble theologian, but as far as I'm concerned, all of astronomy can be boiled down to one statement. 
Twinkle, twinkle, little star, how I wonder what you are. There is no need to oversimplify the doctrine of grace. In fact, there's a need to do just the opposite. Now, when we're first starting off, we're just coming to Jesus. It's enough for us to know that Jesus died for my sins. I'm a sinner. Jesus died for my sins so that I could be forgiven and could be saved. That's enough when we start out. But if that was all God wanted for us to know or needed for us to know, about two pages of Revelation would have been enough for that. We'd have a very thin Bible. God wants more. The well is deeper. The mine is richer. The water is crystal clear and pure. And we need to move to the deep end of the pool because God has much more in store for us. Let me finish with one more story. This one from Jesus. And he tells the story of a wealthy father who has two sons. And the younger son comes to him and says, I want my inheritance now. I know you're not dead, but I want it now. So the father divides an inheritance, gives the younger son his portion. The younger son goes off and spends it in wild living. Spends it until he has nothing. And when he runs out of money, a famine strikes the land. And he's hungry and no one will give him anything. Finally, he works for a pig farmer feeding the pigs. And he wants to eat the pig food. He's so hungry. And the Bible says when he came to his senses, he realized, I'm not worthy to be a, a son for my father anymore, but even his servants have enough to eat and more. So I'm going to go back and I'll apologize. And I've sinned against you and against God. And I just want to be one of your hired servants. So he goes back. And the Bible says when he was still a, a long ways off, the father saw his son coming because he'd been watching for him. And he runs and he embraces him. And the son starts off in this speech, Father, I've sinned against you and against God. I'm not worthy. And the, son, the father interrupts him and says, bring a robe for my son. Bring a ring for his finger and kill the fatted calf because we're going to have a celebration. That, of course, is a picture of God's grace. Meanwhile, the older son is out working in the field. And when he comes home and he hears the celebration, he, he asks his servant, what's going on? The servant says, well, your brother came home. We're having, there's a party. And the older brother refuses to go in. And you know the story. So the father comes out to beg him. And the older brother says this. He says, look, I've been with you, and I have worked for you like a slave. And you never even gave me a stringy goat to have a party with my friends. And now this other son, who wasted all of your money on prostitutes, has come home, and you killed the fatted calf for him and have a party. See the distorted perception of this older son, how he views his father, a picture of God. And the father says, son, you've been with me all along. Everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate. Because your brother was lost, and he's been found, and he was dead, and now he's alive. The father had two lost sons, and both were lost because they did not understand the gracious nature of the father. Tim Keller, in his book, Prodigal God, says that word prodigal, we attach it to the prodigal son. It doesn't mean wayward or sinful. It means a spendthrift. Someone who spends recklessly until their money is gone. And while it may apply in one sense to that younger son, it also applies to the father 
in the story who spent everything on his son. And when he came back, he spent more and gave to his older son. He spends and spends until he has nothing less. That God is a prodigal God, profligate God, recklessly spending God with his grace. The Bible says lavishing his grace and his love on us, drenching us, saturating us with his grace and his love. So what I want to do in this sermon series, and we're starting today, is begin to explore this doctrine of God's grace. We're going to take our arrows, we're going to hit that ground several times. We're going to take our, our bowl, and we're going to lift it up to God. Say, fill it up. Fill my cup. Fill it up. Full and overflowing. I want to have everything that you have for me to experience. And as we're singing, if you happen to see my hand up, two hands up, if your hands go up, let's think of it this way. We got our hands up. We got our bowl up to God. Saying, God, I want all that you have to give me. Your grace and your love. Our Father in heaven, uh, we're Christians here. We know we've been forgiven. We know Jesus died for us. We also know there's a lot more there than maybe we've ever realized. And maybe we've just scratched the surface. Uh, that, that we want to go deeper into your love and into your grace. We pray you'll help us in this. We know you want us to have it. You're poised and ready to pour out your joy, your love, and your peace into our hearts. Be with us, God, as we explore, we go down this road, and we mine this mother load of treasure, your, your grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.